listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. morning. Welcome to Whitefields Community Church. So glad that you're here with us today. Please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter in your New Testament. 1 Peter. And guys, can you believe it? We are concluding our study of 1 Peter today. We're going to actually study 2 Peter too. We're going to do that in the new year. But before we get to 2 Peter, we're actually going to do two whole series before we jump back into 2 Peter. So look forward to that. Next week, we're starting our Advent series. But for this week, we are finishing 2 Peter by looking at 2, or I'm sorry, 1 Peter by looking at 1 Peter chapter 5. So 1 Peter chapter 5, find that in your New Testament. If you use a Bible app, uh, you can just go right to 1 Peter, choose chapter 5. Use your table of contents. If you, if you like to find it, here's the, how the, the trick to finding First Peter. Go find Hebrews, the larger book in your New Testament, and then go two books to the right. Hebrews, James, and First Peter. And so we're in First Peter chapter 5. For the last several weeks, we've been studying through First Peter in our series called Pilgrim's Progress, in which we've been studying this great letter, which Peter wrote to Christians spread around through the Roman Empire during a great time of trials, suffering, and persecution. And he says, in this dark backdrop, the hope of the gospel shines all the more clearly. So that's what we've been studying here in First Peter. Let's go ahead and begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from First Peter chapter 5. I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties upon him, because he cares for you. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. It's a good place to stop. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, truly to you be the dominion and power forever and ever. And Lord, in this place this morning, would you have that dominion over our lives, over our hearts, over our ears and our minds as we consider your word. Lord, please speak to us and give us receptivity to your word. Lord, we don't just want to be hearers of your word. We want to be doers of it. And we ask that by your word, you would transform us and that you would do that this morning as we open it up and study it together. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. So imagine with me, if you would, if one day you look at your phone and you got a text from an unknown number and this text says, Nick or, or whatever your name is, you know, insert your name there. Uh, I know who you are. I know where you live. I know all about you and I'm coming to get you. That would be a little bit disheartening, right? Like if it, if it said, hey, I've been studying you. I know your weaknesses and I'm going to get you. I'm going to take you down and I'm going to destroy you. 
Again, that would be a little bit disheartening. And so you would wonder, is this legit? Who is this person? How are they planning to take me down? And just imagine how valuable it would be if there was somebody who could tell you, yeah, this is legit, and here's who this person is, and here are the ways that they are going to try to take you down. The reason that would be so helpful to get a heads up, to get some get tipped off about what this person, this enemy, this adversary was planning to do to try to take you down is because then you would be able to prepare. You'd be able to do things to avoid those attacks. You would know the strategies. You would know who the enemy is and what the strategies are they're planning to use against you. And that's essentially what we have here in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter warns us that there is an enemy of our souls, an enemy of our souls. He tells us who this enemy is, and he also tells us what are some of the strategies that this enemy likes to use to try to take you down. See, and along with that, he also tells us here are the ways that you can avoid falling into these traps, and here's how by the grace of God, as Mike pointed out, he calls him the God of all grace. In verse 8, Peter says this, Be sober-minded, be watchful or vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. First of all, he tells us that we have an adversary. There's someone gunning for you. There's someone looking for you to take you down like a, a shark with his eyes on you, bloodthirsty shark who wants to devour you. And our enemy, his main primary method of destruction to destroy us is deception. His main method of destruction is deception. Jesus said this about the devil. He said, there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. If you think about it, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, the serpent tried to deceive Eve by telling her lies. He told her lies about God, mistruths, untruths about God. He told her, God doesn't really love you. God doesn't really have your best interest in mind. God is just trying to keep you down. He doesn't want you to be happy. And these were all lies. And what were they aimed at? They were aimed at getting Eve to do something through which she would destroy herself. She would bring destruction on herself. And this plan succeeded. See, here's the thing. Peter says that our enemy, the devil, he is a lion who roars. That's what he does. Now think about it though. A roar might be scary. It might be loud. But a roar in and of itself can't hurt you, can it? It's just a roar. And that's interesting because see, here's the thing about the devil, right? The devil can't actually do anything to you without God's permission. We talked about this last week. We talked about suffering and the will of God. So because the devil can't touch you without God's permission, one of his main strategies that he uses is that he'll try to manipulate you into hurting yourself through deception and lies. See, whereas he needs permission to harm you, you don't need anybody's permission to mess up your own life, do you? Yeah, you can just go out and do it right now if you want to. In the Garden of Eden, think about it. The serpent didn't hold down Eve and force her to take a bite of the apple, did he? No, he talked her into it. He talked her into it. He, he got her to do it. He got her to do something to hurt and harm and destroy herself. He couldn't destroy Eve, but he could talk her into destroying herself through lies and deceptions. He did it by appealing to her pride. He did it by stirring up anxiety and fear within her. He did it by feeding her a bunch of mistruths and, and misconceptions about God. 
And guys, there are so many people in the world today, maybe even many of us, right, who believe things about God that are not true and that are, that are really deceptions. They're, they're harmful. They are misconceptions and mistruths about God. Where do you think that comes from? Who do you think is out there spreading that? It's still the serpent. But again, all he can do is roar. In Colossians chapter two, Paul says this incredible list of things that Jesus accomplished on the cross. On the cross, he forgave your sins, nailing the record of your wrongs along with him to the cross. And then he says this, Jesus also disarmed the powers and authorities and made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in the cross. Those powers and authority he's referring to, they're the evil powers and authorities, right? This is demons, the devil. See, Satan has been defeated and disarmed. That's what it tells us there. He's a roaring lion, but he's a lion who's been defanged and declawed. He's got one tool, one weapon in his arsenal that he likes to use, and he's been using it for a long time, and that's his roar, his voice, you know, sometimes I hear people talk about Satan and evil forces as if there's like this tug of war going on, right? Between God and, and, and his side and the devil and his side. And it's pretty much like a tie, right? It's like tug of war and it's 50-50. We don't know who's gonna win. In fact, it kind of looks like the devil's gonna win. So they'll say, you need to jump on, you know, God's side and start pulling on that rope so that God can win. Because if you don't, the devil's probably gonna win. Now that image of a tug of war and the idea that somehow God, Satan is God's counterpart or his equal, that's so incredibly far from what the Bible says about the truth of the matter. The devil isn't God's equal. He isn't God's counterpart. He's been defeated and disarmed. There's one weapon he's got left in his arsenal and that's his roar. If he can't get to you directly, he'll roar at you and try to use deception in order to get you to destroy yourself. And here in the final section of this letter, Peter warns us about some of the key strategies that the devil uses to trap us and how to avoid falling into those traps. The title of today's message is Know Your Enemy. And Peter tells us about three traps. Number one, he talks about pride in the first six verses. Secondly, he'll talk about anxiety in verses seven through nine. Then he'll talk about prosperity in verse 10. So let's talk about pride. This is the one that takes up the majority of the chapter. Peter begins this final chapter, not by talking about pride directly, but by addressing those who were elders in the church. But you'll see how he ties this into the idea of pride. He says, in the first part of verse one, I exhort those among you who are elders. Remember Peter's writing, not just to one particular church, but to all of the Christians throughout the world, primarily in the Roman Empire. When it comes to knowing your enemy, it's important to know who your enemy is because then you also know who your enemy isn't. It's important to know who your enemy is because then you also know who your enemy isn't. And Peter says, look, your enemy is the devil, but your enemy isn't other people in the church. That's important to remember. See, we get into a lot of problems in a lot of areas of our lives when we forget who the real enemy is, what the real battle is that we're supposed to be engaged in and fighting. You know, husbands and wives, let me just remind you, your spouse is not your enemy. You know, young people, children, your parents are not your enemy. Your enemy, by the way, is not that other person in church who offended you or with whom you have a disagreement. You have a real enemy, don't get sidetracked with fighting with people who are supposed to be on your same team. 
You know, in the book of 1 Samuel, we see a vivid example of this and what happens when infighting takes place. See, in, in the book of 1 Samuel, we read about Israel's first king. His name was King Saul. He was very popular. At the time that King Saul became king, the people were under attack from a nation called the Philistines. The Philistines were trying to take over and invade the nation of Israel. And so King Saul, you know, put together an army. They were fighting them, and they were successfully holding them off. Now, David became one of Saul's best fighters. In fact, he became one of his generals, leading troops to fight Philistine armies and against these, you know, onslaught of Philistine warriors. And so David, he's a general in Saul's army, and he's faithful to Saul. But as David won more and more battles, Saul became a little bit insecure. He, he began to feel threatened by David's increasing popularity, especially when he heard that the people who had formerly sung his praises were now singing a new song. The song went like this, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed ten thousands. See, they're still singing Saul's praises, but yet he becomes insecure because of the success of another person. And he begins to consider David his rival, even though David didn't consider Saul a rival. David was like, I'm, on, I'm with you, Saul, heart and soul. But David began to look with suspicion upon Saul and see him as his rival. And soon he saw him as his enemy. And pretty soon Saul had turned against David and he began a full-scale campaign to try to hunt David down and take him down. And even kill him. And here's what he did in that campaign David fled out into the desert. He was hiding in caves. And Saul took the whole force of the army of Israel and started chasing David, trying to find him and take him down and kill him. Now, why is that a bad idea? Because they're at war. They're at war. And they diverted the entire army to chasing somebody who was on their same side. And guess what happened? Now neither David nor Saul are fighting the real enemy, the Philistines, anymore. And all their national resources are diverted trying to go on this mission to hunt down a guy who's on their same side. And so the Philistines, what do they do? They just walk in and they take over almost the entire country of Israel with nobody, you know, opposing them. There's nobody to fight anymore. They're all busy fighting each other. And so, you see, the thing is this. If Saul would have just remembered that there was a real enemy that they were supposed to be fighting, and who that enemy was, he wouldn't have been fighting David. He would have been locking arms together with David. He would have said, David, your success is my success, and let's lock arms, let's fight this battle against our real enemy together, and they would have won. They would have been victorious. But instead, because Saul was chasing David, instead of fighting the Philistines, the Philistines took over the country. And in a cruel twist of irony, how does Saul die? He dies at the hands of the Philistines. The Philistines who he allowed to take over his country because he was distracted fighting against someone who was supposed to be on his same side. The Philistines walk in and in a cruel twist of irony, they end up capturing Saul and his sons and executing them. It's something that would have never happened if Saul had been focused on the real enemy and the real battle rather than fighting against somebody who was on his same side. In your marriage, guys, the same thing will be true. In your family, the same thing will be true. As a church, the same thing will be true. Let's not make that mistake. Instead, you know what we got to do? We got to lock arms together and fight the good fight of faith together. 
Is that true, guys? Should we do that? Should we reach some people with the truth that sets us free? Should, should we do some good in Jesus' name together? Should we take some ground for the gospel together? Locking arms? Let's be quick to forgive. Let's be dedicated to one another because we are on the same team with the same goals, with the same mission. See, Peter begins this by addressing those who are elders. He says, first of all, knowing who your enemy is also tells you who your enemy isn't. So let's talk about church, he says. He says this idea of elders, by the way. He addresses elders. The idea of elders comes from the Old Testament, especially if you look at the book of Exodus. You'll see that the way the people of God were structured and managed in the Old Testament is that there were elders chosen from among the people who had responsibility for caring for the people and serving their needs. And this is carried then into the New Testament where we're told, Paul tells his protégés, he says, appoint elders in every church. Appoint elders in every church. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we're actually given the qualifications for the character of an elder. But here's what Peter says about what an elder is to do. He says, I exhort you as a fellow elder. That's interesting. Did you know that actually every time the There's a list of disciples or a list of apostles in the Gospels or in the book of Acts. Peter is always listed first. Did you know that? Every single time, you can check it. Peter's always listed first. You could say that he had a primacy amongst the disciples. He was the first amongst the disciples and amongst the apostles, but he doesn't assert that. He rather says, hey guys, I'm an elder just like you. And he says, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed. Now, we know from the Gospels that Peter was not present at Jesus' crucifixion. Peter was not present at Jesus' crucifixion. So what's he saying when he says that he was a witness of the sufferings of Christ? Let me remind you why Peter wasn't at the crucifixion, because it's relevant to what we're going to talk about after this as well. At the Last Supper, the same night when Jesus was betrayed and arrested, put on a mock trial, then beaten and finally crucified in the morning, that same night, the Last Supper, Jesus was there with his disciples and he told them at the Last Supper, this very night, one of you is going to betray me. And Peter spoke up, full of confidence, full of pride, full of hubris, and he says, Even if everyone else here turns their back on you, Jesus, I never will. Right there in front of everybody, right? Like, you gotta, I mean, I wonder what they were thinking about him, right? There he is in front of everybody being like, well, look, Jesus, honestly, I wouldn't be surprised if all these other losers turn against you. I mean, honestly, I've never really trusted any of these guys, except for maybe Judas. He seems to really have his act together. That's why we let him be in charge of the money, right? And so, uh, you know, other than Judas, these other guys, they're all a bunch of losers. I wouldn't be surprised if they all turn their backs on you. But me, definitely not. I would never turn my back on you, right? There's so much pride, so much arrogance in this statement, so much hubris. And what does Jesus say to him? Jesus replies and says, Peter, truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And then what does Peter do? Rather than being like, okay, sorry. No, he doubles down and he says, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. So what happens? 
Well, you probably know the story. Jesus was arrested. They took him and put him on trial. They accused him of blasphemy because he claimed that he, a man, was God come to earth. And during the trial, Peter was standing around warming himself at a fire nearby, trying to get as close as he could without being found out because they just arrested Jesus. Who do you think they're going to arrest next? His followers as well. And some people there at the fire, they recognized Peter as one of Jesus' disciples. And right there, Peter denies Jesus three times denies that he's ever known him or ever met him in his life and then what does he do he runs away so there's Jesus being crucified being flogged and where's Peter nowhere to be found he's run away he's not there so what does this mean here in verse 1 where Peter says that he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker of the glory that is going to be revealed? Well, understand, he's not saying that he was an eyewitness to Jesus' crucifixion or Jesus' sufferings, his passion. Rather, what he's talking about is the sufferings that Christians endure for the sake of following Jesus. In the previous chapter, chapter 4, verse 13, Peter said that when we suffer in the name of Jesus, when we suffer for our faith as Christians, he called that sharing in Christ's suffering. So what is Peter saying here? Peter's leveling with them. He's saying, not only am I a fellow elder, he says, you know what else I am? I'm a fellow Christian. I'm also suffering. Remember, he's writing to suffering people, experiencing persecution. He's saying, guys, I too am experiencing the same persecution that you're going through. And I too share the same hope of the glory that awaits us, that God has in store for us. He goes, that's the same hope that gets me through as well. I'm one of you. And Peter's big exhortation comes next. He says, I'm one of you. And this is what I want to say to the elders. Verse two, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Elder is the role, shepherding is the action. Elder's the role, shepherding is the action. The word shepherd, by the way, in Greek is the word pastor. The word pastor is straight from Greek. It literally just means shepherd. And the elders in the church are called to do this action, to shepherd God's people. Now, what does it mean to shepherd somebody? Well, think about what a shepherd does. A shepherd does really basically three things. They feed, they lead, and they protect. Feed, lead, and protect. So those who shepherd in the church are those who feed, lead, and protect those who are under their oversight. Now, some of you might be thinking, okay, cool. Well, I'm not an elder, so I'm just going to check out right now and scroll on my phone, right? Well, here's what I want to tell you. There are people whom God has put under your oversight, whether they're children, whether they're siblings. I don't know who they are, but there are people whom God has put under your oversight. And I want to encourage you, shepherd those people. Feed them the word of God. Lead them in God's ways and protect them from error, false doctrine, things like we said, deception of the devil who wants to trick you and trap you into wrecking yourself. Notice what Peter, said ne- Peter says next. He says, exercising oversight. Oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So leaders in the church are not to rule with a heavy hand, right? A leader who goes around reminding you all the time that they're a leader, that's, that's really not a very good leader. You know, I love this quote from Margaret Thatcher. She says, being a leader is a lot like being a lady. If you have to tell people you are one, you probably aren't, right? So he says, don't do it uh, with a heavy hand. Don't be reminding people, coming down with a heavy hand. Hey, don't forget who's in charge around here, right? No, 
they're not to rule with a heavy hand, but they are to exercise oversight. By the way, the word oversight is an interesting word. It comes from the Greek word episkopos. Episkopos, which you might have heard, the root of that is the word that comes into the, into the church, right? Episcopalian. It comes from this word episkopos, which means overseer. That's an interesting word because this word is believed to be a word which comes from the business community and the, in the Greek culture. The business community, it's a word that describes somebody who leads and runs a company. In our language today, we would call this person an executive, an executive. In, in other words, there are two words that describe people who lead in God's church and what they're to be like and what they're to do. Elder is a word that comes from the Greek culture. I'm sorry, the Jewish culture. And it speaks about maturity and wisdom. And overseer is a word that comes from the Greek culture. And it speaks of, you know, financial oversight and management of responsibilities and, um, and resources. And the church needs both of these roles in their leaders. They need people who can manage well, ministries and resources, and they also need people who are examples in godly living, setting examples for others to follow as elders. So Peter says they're not to do this, not to lead in God's church in a heavy-handed way. Paul says a similar thing. I love what he says in 2 Corinthians. He says, we are not here to rule over your faith. Rather, we are here to be helpers of your joy. That's what it means to lead in God's church is to be a helper of people's joy. This is something that Peter learned directly from Jesus himself. You remember Jesus told his disciples, the people in this world who, who lead, who rule over others, they love to lord over people, right? Domineer them. But it shall not be so among you. Rather, among you, the greatest person will be the one who serves the most, who's the greatest servant of others. This is the idea that Peter's been talking about throughout this letter over and over. He's used this word humility, which in Greek is the word hupatasso. It's a, it's a military word which speaks of ranking yourself under somebody. And, and it's the picture that we can draw in our mind, this idea of hupatasso. It's rather than pushing other people down so that you can make yourself up higher, rather it's the idea of getting underneath other people and lifting them up. And that's what leaders in the church are called to do, lift others up. But again, this isn't limited to leaders in the church. This is for everybody. This is what Peter's been telling us throughout this letter. Get underneath people, lift them up, help them to grow and become all that God wants them to be. So whereas leaders shouldn't be heavy-handed, they also shouldn't be passive, right? He says they should exercise oversight. I love what Peter says here in verse two. He says, don't do it under compulsion nor for shameful gain. See, I know a lot of pastors, and I'll just let you in on a little pastor secret, which you may not know. Sometimes pastors complain about being pastors, right? They'll complain to each other, but sometimes they also just complain to everybody, right? And uh, some pastors complain a lot. And I, I think this is a, it's a really important verse for those guys to read, because some of them will be posting online all the time, you know, how hard it is to be a pastor and, and all these things. And, and I'll, I will be the first to admit, there are some unique challenges which come with serving in a church as your job. But I'll tell you this on the other hand, you all know this who have jobs, there are unique challenges to your job as well. And this is a really important verse for anybody who serves the Lord, particularly those who serve for, for a paycheck, right? Who, who are paid by the church, what's called vocational ministry. It means that it's your full-time job. Here's what I would remind those who complain is, hey, nobody's forcing you to do this. Don't, don't do this under compulsion. Rather, if you do this, if you believe that God has called you to do it, well, then you should 
should be feeling that this is the most privileged thing in the world that you get to do, that you get to feed, lead, and protect the people of God in the church, and you get to do that as your full-time job. So Peter says, don't do it under compulsion. Don't act like somebody's forcing you to do this. Peter says in verse four, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. See, those who serve as shepherds and overseers in God's church, they have a boss who they will give account to. And they should also remember that their reward for their service may not primarily come in this life, but it will come from God. And that's how they should serve. In verse five, Peter speaks to those who are younger and he tells them to be subject to their elders, to respect the leadership that God has appointed in the church. But he doesn't stop there. Look at what he says at the end of verse five. He says, now to all of you, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This brings us back to where we started. The key strategy of the devil to try to take you down, one of them is pride. Our adversary uses this. It's a trap that he tries to lead us into, and it's deadly. See, pride isn't just a bad habit. It's not just obnoxious character trait. It's something that causes you to set yourself in opposition to God, and it will ultimately destroy you. You know, pride was the first sin, right? It was the sin of the devil. It was the first sin. It's been said that pride was what split heaven and created hell. Pride was what split heaven and created hell. Satan's heart was puffed up with pride and he rebelled against God. So just think about that. That same pride that caused Satan to fall, the same pride that created hell in the first place, the same pride that led Adam and Eve in order, led them to rebel against God and bring so much destruction into the world. It is a trap that you and I are faced with every single day. And if it did that to them, guess what it will do to you? Guess what it will do to me? It will do the exact same thing. Pride is described as, in the Bible as being puffed up, being inflated. You know, the inflammation is deadly. Almost every cause of death that's not accidental has this one thing in common, inflammation, right? Whether it's cancer, heart disease, stroke, whatever, you can go down the line. Inflammation kills and that's true spiritually as well. Pride is a barrier to spiritual progress because God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So how do we avoid this trap of pride? Peter tells us here's how, by clothing yourself in humility. By doing what Peter says next in chapter six, by humbling yourself before God, positioning yourself under him, and then making it your goal to lift other people up. See, we follow the greatest person who ever lived in the history of the world. And what made him great? You know what made him great? Is that he emptied himself. He took on the form of a servant. He didn't come to be served. He came to serve and to give his life for others. That is his glory. That is his greatness. And so we are called not to seek our best life now, but to give our lives in service to God and in service to others. Because here's the irony. The more you focus on your own happiness, the more you focus on your own fulfillment, the more empty and miserable you will be. Do you know that that's absolutely true? The more you focus on your own happiness and your own fulfillment, the more miserable and empty you will be. But on the other hand, as Jesus told us, the great irony of life is this. If you will lay down your life and follow him and serve other people in his name, you will be more fulfilled and more happy than you could ever imagine. See, what Peter says in verse two, it's interesting. He says, shepherd the flock of God that's among you. 
That's an interesting phrase to come from Peter, isn't it? You know why? Because remember that story I told you just a second ago about the time when Peter fell, when he promised that he was greater than everybody else, and then he fell and he denied Jesus. See, it was in his pride that Peter claimed, even if everyone else falls away, I never will. And then he did. See, pride comes before the fall. But after Peter's fall, after Peter denied Jesus, he was sure that he was disqualified from being a leader of God's people ever again. See, he was still a follower of Jesus. We see that he was present at the, the day that Jesus resurrected. We see that he hung around still. But Peter, we know that he, he must have felt he was disqualified from leading in the church of God because we see that he went back to his old job. We see Peter again after Jesus' resurrection. He's given up on being a leader amongst God's people, even though that's what Jesus told him he would do. But Peter goes back to fishing. And one morning... In John chapter 21, the final chapter in the Gospel of John, we read about an instance in which after his resurrection, but before his ascension, Jesus appeared to Peter on the shore of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus cooked him breakfast and called him over from the water to the shore. You know, on our trip to Israel this summer, we got to see the actual place where that happened. It's a very noticeable place where that took place. And we got to be in that place. It was incredible. And Jesus asked Peter in that place. He called him to the shore and they ate breakfast together. And Jesus said to him, Simon, son of Jonah, that was Peter's full name. It's kind of like when your mom, you know, calls you by your full name, right? Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? Because remember, that's what Peter said. I love you more than anybody else. And Peter said, Lord, you know that I love you. See, what's so interesting about this conversation and what most of us miss when we just read it in English is that Jesus and John, I'm sorry, Jesus and Peter are using two different words for the word love. See, many other languages other than English, we just have one word, right? Like we love pizza, we love our dog, and we love our wife and kids, right? And we love Jesus, right? It's all the same word. But in other languages, they have different words to describe different kinds of love. And so this is the interaction here. It's kind of, it goes totally missed in English because do you love me? Yeah, I love you. But what's really interesting here is that they're using two different words for love. See, in English, again, we only have one word. In Greek, there are four. And so the word that Jesus is using here is the word agape. He's saying, you know, agape love is this ultimate kind of love. It's perfect love. It's divine love. It's unconditional love. And Jesus is asking Peter, Peter, do you love me unconditionally? Peter, do you love me with perfect love? And Peter responds, yes, Lord, I love you. But the word he uses for love is a different word. He uses the word phileo, which is the kind of love that you have for your family members. It's still deep love. It's still meaningful love, but it's not perfect love. It's not the ultimate kind of love. It's not divine love. See, Jesus is asking him, Peter, do you love me more than anybody else loves me? Remember, that's what Peter had claimed on that night before he denied Jesus. And Peter's response is, Lord, you know that I love you. But again, he's using a lesser word. And three times they go back and forth. Jesus says, Peter, do you love me with perfect love? And Peter says, Lord, I love you, but not with perfect love. What's going on here? You know, as you read this, you can't help but wonder why. What, why this interaction? Why is it going this way? And why does Jesus repeat it three times? Why? Because Peter denied Jesus three times. He's walking him through a process of reconciliation and restoration. He's healing what Peter broke. And what Jesus is doing, he's restoring him. 
And each time Peter responds, yes, I love you, but not with agape love, but with, with phileo love. He's essentially saying this, look, I'm not perfect. I realize that now, but I do love you. My love for you isn't what it should be. I recognize that. But to the best of my ability, I do love you deeply. What's happening in this interaction is all about humility and pride. It's all about humility and pride. See, whereas before Peter was prideful, now Peter has been humbled. He's no longer trying to assert that he's better than anybody else. He's showing humility rather than pride. And so every time that Peter responds, Jesus responds back to him. He says, do you love me with perfect love? Peter says, I love you as best I can. And Jesus says, well then, tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. Three times he tells him, feed my sheep. So it's so interesting that Peter here would say, you who are elders, feed the sheep. You notice that uh, now we see Peter, he's passing on that message to others. Feed the sheep of God. And God, remember this, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to those who humble themselves before him. The way to avoid the trap of pride is to humble yourself before God and others and like Jesus, take on the posture and the position of a servant, not out of compulsion, not expecting a pat on the back or any kind of compensation, but understanding that your reward will come from God. Okay, the next two we'll move through quickly, but the second trap of the devil that Peter warns us about is a trap of anxiety. He says in verse seven, casting your anxieties upon him because he cares for you. See, one of the devil's traps to get you afraid and worried about stuff in the future, he, he tries to get you worried about stuff that may or may not ever happen. You know, the majority of stuff that I worry about and probably the majority of stuff that you worry about is stuff that will never end up happening at all. But by the time it doesn't happen, You've already wasted all that time, all that energy worrying about it. This, ha this happened to me just yesterday, right? Like uh, I found myself worried about something and it totally stole my attention away from my family and things that I should have been paying attention to. It robbed me of something that I can't get back. It was a trap of the devil. It, it made me ineffective. The other thing I found is this. Even if the worst case scenario does happen, right? The thing that you fear does happen. You know what happens? God will give you the grace to walk through that. And it's usually never as bad as you anticipated it being. And so he says, therefore, cast your anxieties upon him for he cares for you. That word cast, it means to throw something, right? To chuck it with all of your strength as far as you can. I love that it doesn't say lay it at his feet. You know why? Because even after you lay it at his feet, you might pick it up. It doesn't say hand it over to him because as you hand it, you might hold on to it, right? And not relinquish your grip on it even when it's in his hands but instead it says cast it out of your hands throw it upon him because he cares for you treat it like a hot potato you've got to get rid of that thing you throw it at him why because he cares for you cast your cares on him because he cares for you it's a 2,000 year old pun and it still works here in English See, here's the thing. You can only do so much. There's so much in this life that is out of your control. And anxiety can be crippling. It's a, it's a trap. It paralyzes you. It eats up your time. It eats up your energy. It distracts you from things that actually matter. You see, it's a trap and we fall right into it. Jesus told us this. Who among you can add even an hour to your life by worrying? See, worrying actually accomplishes nothing. It ruins your life and renders you ineffective. And that is exactly what the enemy of our souls wants. Instead, what Jesus tells us to do is what Peter told us to do. With the things that are outside of your control, 
Cast them upon God because he is in control and he cares about you. You can pour out your heart to him in prayer and leave those anxieties to him. But notice what he says in verse eight. He says, be sober-minded, resist the devil, be watchful. Well, that's interesting, right? It's almost like, is he saying the opposite of what he said in verse seven? In verse seven, he's like, let go and let God. In verse eight, he's like, but be watchful and fight. If the answer is, what is it? Is it the one or is it the other? Of course, the answer is both. See, we're to entrust our circumstances fully unto God and then we are to be actively involved. So trust your finances to God and show up for work on time tomorrow morning. You trust God to protect you from the evil one and you resist him with all of your might. See, we trust God fully and we put in full effort. It's not one or the other, it's both. The final trap that Peter warns us about is the trap of prosperity. In verse 10, he says, after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to eternal glory in Christ will restore you, confirm you, strengthen you, and establish you. Peter's telling these people, these trials you're facing, they're not gonna last forever. There will come a day when this too will pass. Now, on the one hand, Peter might be saying that, hey, life is short relative to eternity. Therefore, look forward to the glory that will be revealed to you in heaven. That's true. But there, it's also possible that what he's saying here is this. These trials will not last forever. For most of you, there will come a time when these trials will end. And when these trials end, you will need God's grace to restore you, to rebuild you, to strengthen you, and to establish you. One of the biggest traps that the enemy tries to lure us into is the trap of complacency. And complacency is often tied to prosperity. I remember there was a time in our lives where for several years in a row, we were in crisis mode, right? There's one crisis after another. And what that does to you in your life is it keeps you in a place of dependence upon God. It keeps you in prayer every night, humble and, and seeking God. But when those things are over, when life gets comfortable again, it's really easy to sink into complacency. It's been said this, that it's been said, times of blessing have destroyed people whom persecution couldn't touch. You're never more vulnerable than you are during a time of victory and prosperity. We see that in the life of David. When he's being chased by Saul, when he's running for his life, those are the times when he's writing psalms and seeking the Lord, when he's in a good place spiritually. But it's later on in his life, when he's in the palace, when he's in comfort, when he's in peace, that's when he ends up going off the rails and walking away from God and doing terrible things. It's like professional athletes in their contract year. A lot of times they'll play their heart out. Then they'll get that huge contract and then they show up for training camp, you know, the next year and they're 30 pounds overweight and they don't even have the fire to play anymore. That's what happens to us a lot of times as well. One of Satan's greatest traps is the trap of prosperity and complacency. So what can we do? He tells us we lean in to the grace of God. We lean in to the grace of God. Peter calls him the God of all grace. Guys, do you know that grace is more than just forgiveness of your sins? Grace is God's supply for whatever you need. It's God's supply for whatever you need in that instance or in that moment. Sometimes you need the grace to keep going. Sometimes you need the grace, the strength to do what God's calling you to do or to face something. Grace is God's supply, his provision for whatever your need is practically. You know, in Jesus, we get to experience God's saving grace, right? The gift of salvation and justification because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But we need God's grace 
every moment of every day, right? We need God's grace for everything that we face in this life and throughout the entirety of our lives. It's God's provision, God's strength, God's ability for whatever you need. And thankfully for us, he is the God of all grace. Verse 11, Peter takes a praise break and he's like, you know what, just thinking about God's grace, I just wanna say this, to him be the dominion and the power forever and ever. In verse 12, in his kind of wrapping things up, his final greetings, he says this. He mentions Silvanus in verse 12. Silvanus is by his side. Apparently, Silvanus was probably the scribe who was writing this letter as Peter spoke it or dictated it out loud. Now, that's interesting. Silvanus is also called Silas. It's two ways to say the same name. He's mentioned in the book of Acts. He was a companion of the apostle Paul on Paul's second missionary journey. And we also know that he was Paul's scribe when Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians. And so it's interesting now that Silvanus or Silas is now with Peter in Rome. It's especially interesting in light of the fact that many people believe that this letter was written in the wake of the death of Paul the Apostle, the execution of Paul in Rome. And so Peter is writing in the wake of Paul's death and he's telling all the people he's writing to, Silvanus, Silas, Paul's bro, right? His companion in ministry, he's here with me together. He says in verse 13, she who is at Babylon, who is also chosen, sends you greetings, as does Mark, my son. She who is at Babylon, this is a euphemism which speaks of the church in Rome. See, Peter is comparing the believers in Rome to the Jews who were in exile in Babylon. Babylon has a lot of prophetic significance in the Bible. In the Bible, by the way, Babylon isn't just a city. Babylon is almost like an idea. It's an attitude. It's a posture of being opposed to God. And Peter is applying these believers in Rome. He's applying that to these people in Rome. And Rome will later be talked about as Babylon in the book of Revelation as well. The Mark that he refers to as his son, most likely not his biological son, although we do know that Peter was married, he had a wife. Most likely, though, the Mark he's talking about here is someone who is a leader in the early church called John Mark, who went with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. He was actually the kind of the the root of some strife between Paul and Barnabas. And he's also the person who was believed to be the one who wrote the Gospel of Mark. And the Gospel of Mark is considered to be Peter's account of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. It's called Mark because it was written down by Mark and the early church attributed the writing of it to him. This is probably the Mark that we're talking about here. After all these years, still hanging out with Peter. So Peter concludes this letter by saying this, peace to all of you who are in Christ. The truth is, apart from Christ, it is impossible to know true and lasting peace because Jesus gave up his peace He gave up the tranquility and the peace of heaven to come to us and suffer the violence of being rejected and crucified to atone for our sins so that we could have peace with God. That's the hope of the gospel, the promise, the good news. And my prayer for you as we finish this great letter is that whatever you are facing today, that you would experience overwhelming peace even in the midst of it, the peace that comes from the hope of the gospel, the peace of God, not only for what will come, but the peace of God here and now today because of who Jesus is and what he is doing even in the midst of your trials. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you that you are a God who reigns even over our difficult times.
Lord, you are a God who is in control and in charge, and we're thankful that we can entrust all of our lives to you. We're thankful, Lord, that we can cast our cares upon you because you care for us. So Lord, I pray for everyone here today. I'm sure there are some of us who've come into this place this morning with a lot of cares weighing down our heart. Lord, would you help us to cast those upon you because you care for us. Help us to have that true sense, not just head knowledge, but the feeling and knowledge in our minds and our hearts that you do indeed care for us. And Lord, help us to pursue you and take that humble attitude of Jesus, the attitude that leads to ultimate happiness and fulfillment. Lord, please work these great truths into our hearts and lives as we go. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.